Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Racism is evil, and those who cause violence in its name are criminals and thugs, including the KKK, neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and other hate groups that are repugnant to everything we hold dear as Americans. We are a nation founded on the truth that all of us are created equal. U.S. President Donald Trump there condemning neo-Nazis, the KKK and white supremacists in the wake of the far-right demonstration in Virginia at the weekend in which an anti-fascist protester was killed. But why did it take him two days to do it? That's a question I'll be exploring in a moment with our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch. I'll also be talking to Peter Murta in Seoul about today's apparent de-escalation in the crisis over North Korea. Suzanne, as people who tuned into the podcast last week will know, you are currently on a coast-to-coast tour of the United States, taking the temperature, as it were, of the country seven months into the Trump presidency. And as it happened in last Saturday's Irish Times and on irishtimes.com, on the same day that these very disturbing scenes that we'll be talking about in a moment were unfolding in Charlottesville, Virginia, you were writing about the whole issue of racial tensions in the southern states the resurgence of white supremacists, adherence to the Confederate flag and so on. And you wrote specifically about Memphis, Tennessee, where just like in Charlottesville, there's a row over a statue. Can you tell us about that particular issue? Yes, as you said there, Chris, I was writing about this this theme, if you like, about racial tension and how it has galvanised around the, the very controversial issue of Confederate statues and the Confederate flag. So Memphis is one of those very cities um, where there has been controversy over Confederate statues. There are two uh, Confederate statues in the city, including one to Nathan Bedford Forrest, uh, a general in the Civil War on the southern side, and also uh, a founder of of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, Very controversial in that city. Um, There is a a very dramatic, huge uh, statue to him on his horse in one of the central parks in the city in Memphis. Now, I spoke to people in the city about this issue, um, the the council there essentially had voted to um, to take down that statue, uh, but then it faced a number of legal hurdles, not least from the state of Tennessee, um, which essentially introduced a law prohibiting um, something like this ha- from happening. That's now subject to uh, further challenges from the council. So we kind of have stalemate in the city of Memphis. Um, and stalemate also in, in another city in, in Tennessee, Nashville, which has got a, ser- a similar problem. Um, but Memphis is a very interesting city. I suppose it epitomizes this issue that we're seeing across the South. Uh, it's, it's a black majority city. About 65% of residents uh, of Memphis are African-American. It was one of um, the first cities uh, that was settled after slaves were freed uh, after the Civil War. Um, a lot of African-American freed slaves moved up from Mississippi along by the Mississippi River and eventually settled in Memphis, uh, Tennessee. So huge history uh, of, of segregation initially and of more recently of, of, um, of racial diversity in this city. Um, so I suppose, it, as I said in that piece, really this is an issue that has been happening in America for a long time. Um, there have been various marches about Confederate statues over the last couple of years um, and it took this event in Charlottesville at the weekend, I think, to really propel this into uh, the international consciousness. And so the, the, the issues at play in Memphis were very similar actually to those that specifically led to this, the, the eruption of violence in, in Charlottesville on Saturday. Yes. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the point to be made here, very simply, is that it, it, it's, it's an obvious debate, really. But for a lot of the people in the African-American community, statues of Confederate generals who fought on the southern side in the Civil War, which was pro-slavery, to them, this is a, a symbol uh, of racial oppression that they feel should not be glorified or remembered in any way in American society today. On the other hand, you've got a lot of people, particularly in the South, whose ancestors fought on the southern side in the Civil War and are proud of that heritage and feel, you know, there's no point in in changing history, uh, that this is part of the fabric uh, of American history. And and, and in order to understand history, you need to to confront it in a sense. And we've seen similar debates happening, for example, in the UK, in cities like Oxford in England, where there was a lot of controversy over the statue of Cecil Rhodes, um, the the co- colonialist, um, and also the city of Bristol, for example, have had to, has had to confront its own uh, past and, and involvement in slave trade. So I think this is a debate that's happening all over the world. In America, it, it's particularly relevant at the moment. There's something like 700 statues across the South. I've seen them in very many cities I've visited over the last two weeks. For example, in Oxford, Mississippi, there's a Confederate statue just there uh, in front of, of the courthouse. Um, I've seen Confederate flags, which are also very controversial, flying outside, not just public buildings around the South, but also outside private houses. And as I say, a lot of uh, Southerners, um, mainly Republicans, it has to be said, who have Confederate links in their past are quite happy with that heritage and do not want to see that being eradicated. Uh, now, as has been widely reported, we know what happened at the weekend. A young woman uh, called um, Heather Hare was killed um, when she was run down by a car, allegedly driven by a far-right supporter. And Donald Trump's reaction initially was to blame many sides for the, the, the violence that had taken place. And it was only after, you know, he came under severe pressure from several quarters, including within the Republican Party, over two days that he, that he came out and issued this very clear statement, which we carried at the top of the programme. Why do you think this president has so much apparent difficulty in calling a Nazi a Nazi? I think the fear is that President Trump has taken no effort or no opportunity when it has been given to him to denounce denounce, um, members of the alt-right, members of the far-right community, the white nationalist community in America. Uh, This happened during the campaign uh, when he was asked to denounce, uh, for example, uh, David Duke, uh, the leader of the Ku Klux Klan, a number of times, and he really failed to engage with that, failed to do that. So the suspicion here in the US is that he is just reluctant to criticize what remains uh, quite an important part of his base, of his support network. Um, interestingly, this whole controversy has coincided with a period of um, of reflection about the, the role of Steve Bannon in the administration in the White House. There were expectations that perhaps he was going to be sidelined. Um, but there are now rumors that he had maybe a role in encouraging not, not President Trump to not denounce the white uh, supremacists, but at the very least to be careful on how he, he did that. But I think evidently this really has backfired for the president. Um, the fact that he did have to come out a couple of days later and, and name, um, take on these white supremacists by name, shows a belated response, shows a president uh, who's been forced to U-turn. Um, and I think um, it is really has not resonated well here across America, where this story really is has ricocheted across the country and it's dominating coverage dominating a talk here in the US. It's not the first time though of course we think something you know has gone wrong for for um, yeah. President Trump and maybe because we keep judging um, these stories by by previous standards and we say well this is very damaging yeah. for the president. Um, do you think this will damage him again among his core support because that seems to be that seems to hold up every time we think something has happened that um, has blown up in his face. 
No, I think you're absolutely right. I think the point to remember here is, as I explained there, this issue has been a live issue in American culture for a long time, particularly since the shooting by Dylan Roof of nine African-Americans in a church in South Carolina in 2015. Um, That led to the Confederate flag being taken down from outside Capitol grounds in Charleston and South Carolina. So there have been a lot of protests, including by white supremacists, over even the last six months. Uh, So People here are used to that and in a sense are able to explain that and justify that by saying, well, this is just um, a core, a very, very small group of white supremacists who do not reflect the views of most Southerners who are quite comfortable with the Confederate statues uh, staying in place. Uh, You know, this is just an extreme fringe and does not reflect the views of, of many people at all in the US. So in that sense, I think President Trump will be able um, to, to ride out the storm, as you say. Um, the fact that somebody was killed, of course, ups the ante in this. Uh, but interestingly, Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General, has taken a strong enough line. He has, um, there is now a, a, essentially an FBI investigation into this, where, so we'll see where that uh, leads. But that will probably buy the administration some time as well. That will probably take some months, as these things do. Um, and it does show that they are trying to do something about this uh, particular situation that happened in Charleston, but um, or in Charlottesville, I should say. But I think it, it's interesting already. We saw overnight that in Durham, North Carolina, the place where I actually started my, my trip uh, two weeks ago, almost two weeks ago now, a statue was toppled uh, in that city overnight. So the big question now is, are we going to see more violence? Are we going to see more protests across America? The mayor of Lexington, Kentucky, for example, has said that he is going to move um, some statues there. Again, that's also in Tennessee, the state I mentioned at the beginning. So that is going to be complex. Uh, but again, are we going to see protests in places like Kentucky? That is now the question uh, moving forward here. And as you mentioned there in Durham, people have essentially took the, the not so much the law into their own hands, but took the position into their own hands and toppled that statue. But are there indications, Suzanne, that there will be more... Um, at official level, um, a, a response to what happened at the weekend in Charlottesville. And actually, there's now greater pressure, I think, than ever. Is there to remove many of these Confederate statues and, and symbols? I think so. I think so. As I said, to take the example of Memphis that I visited, uh, this happened. I spoke to these people before Saturday's events. Um, and the issue had kind of died down there to an extent. I think what we saw in America was that after the 2015 shootings in the church in South Carolina, there was a kind of resurgence of interest in this whole Confederate controversy. And we saw a number of, of cities move to try and, and remove these statues, the most famous one being New Orleans, which removed four statues this year. But things seem to have died down in a sense. When I went to Memphis, as I said, it was kind of stuck in a legal um, quagmire, if you like, between the state and the city. But I think events like this and, and the death death of somebody um, will obviously propel this now back to centre stage and I think it's going to give renewed momentum uh, to certain mayors. I think the the comments from the mayor of of Lexington, um, Kentucky, are are very significant. He came out and said he is going to move forward now with uh, abolishing these statues. Are we going to see more mayors coming out like him in the next few days? But yeah, undoubtedly, I think it's given it this renewed momentum uh, for those uh, those mayors and those citizens who really want to see these uh, statues eradicated. And what was your sense, Suzanne, travelling through the southern states about the level of support that there is? Not obviously not for white supremacists, but the level of support there is, you know, mm. to an attachment to these um, Confederate symbols. I mean, this is a huge cultural issue in the US. The legacy of the Civil War is still very much alive and well in American society, uh, both in its very negative, uh, you know, the racial overtones to that. This was obviously a, a war that was fought 
over the issue of slavery. Um, although a lot of people in the South dispute that. They say it's about state rights. They want to kind of whitewash that part of, of the reasoning behind civil war. But no, it's, it's a huge issue uh, in American culture. Um, and, and has long been, for example, there's a, um, a very significant movement of, of civil war reenactments that happen here every year where people dress up in, in the gear. There's quite a sophisticated reenactment of key battles. People who watch House of Cards will uh, might remember there's a scene, there's a whole episode in House of Cards where the president uh, attends one of these reenactments and finds out that his own great-grandfather fought on the Confederate side. So I suppose the point I'm making is that it's a hugely, uh, people are hugely aware of the Civil War here and would be loath, some people would be loath to let that legacy go. Um, I spoke to one woman uh, in Alabama, actually, who was from New Orleans and mentioned it to me and said that she could not believe that the mayor had uh, taken down the statue, uh, that she was shocked by this, that it was, you know, trying to rewrite history. And it, it was it was failing to confront the reality of American history that ma- that has made Americans what they are today, for good or for bad. And she said how she did not want to visit New Orleans or hometown again because the mayor had done this. So I think emotions are running high about this. And it will be interesting to see how politicians, particularly on the Republican side, respond to this. A lot of the mayors who've come out so far are Democrats. The Lexington, Kentucky mayor, for example, is a Democratic mayor. So he is prepared to take that stance on the statues. But will we see um, Republicans in these uh, strongly Republican areas, strong white vote, uh, will we see them taking on this issue? That That's going to be another question. And, uh, and I doubt a lot of them will want to take on what is a very emotive issue for a lot of people. Okay, and Suzanne, just to recap, you mentioned um, Steve Bannon there a few moments ago. Is there a sense that his position in the White House has been weakened by the controversy of the last few days and and that he might even be the next one heading for the the exit door? I think there is now concerns about uh, a concern about Steve Bannon's future and that he has been sidelined by the president. Obviously, there has been there have been huge personnel changes within the West Wing in the last month, uh, particularly uh, the introduction of John Kelly as chief of staff there. Um, So uh, Steve Bannon is a very important connection for the president in terms of his links with his base, in terms of his his theories on trade, etc. But at the moment, yes, uh, I think there are major question marks now about his future in the administration. Uh, But as we know, President Trump is a man who takes very impulsive decisions, um, who who goes uh, with the ebb and flow, if you like, of events. Um, so while nothing is imminent, it is very possible in the, in the next few weeks we could see a move to remove or to at least sideline Steve Bannon from the administration. Okay. And finally, Suzanne, you're, you're nearing the end of your road trip, though your, your articles continue for the rest of the week on, on irishtimes.com. Um, it's been a great series. What, what are your lasting impressions from the trip you've made? Is, is the apparent division between liberal and conservative America as deep and, and as wide as it looks? Uh, yes, I think it's it's even deeper. I think than than I appeared. I think the United States is is far from united uh, as uh, as we really saw over the weekend over this division over the Confederate statue issue. Um, it's a hugely divided country, and I think it's very much divided over partisan lines. You know, one is either Republican, one is either a Democrat, one is either a Trump supporter, or you're not. Um, and I'm writing during the week about a few occasions where again I had lunch with two people. Um, and it became very obvious that one was a Trump supporter, one wasn't, and, and how that whole atmosphere kind of poisoned that conversation I was having. People are, are afraid to say um, if they're in favour of Trump or not. It's very divisive. And then it's very split between countries. Um, in in Arkansas, where I visited, it was extremely difficult to find any 
a Democrat supporter. Um, whereas as soon I've just arrived uh, in California and it's the opposite, obviously, it's very, very hard uh, to find a Republican supporter in somewhere like San Francisco. So I think, you know, likeness begets likeness. People feel very comfortable when they're surrounded by other people who who share their views. Um, but then there's no middle ground here, I think. Um, so I think that uh, it has served to kind of underscore the divisions between parties here, because ultimately what we what I've seen is that um, despite uh, some Republicans discomfort with President Trump um, and their uneasiness, maybe with his tweeting and his language, ultimately they were not prepared uh, to give Democrats a shot at the White House this time. Ultimately, they were very, very opposed to Hillary Clinton's candidacy. And really that Donald Trump, for all his flaws, were better than having a, another Democrat for eight years. So I think a lot of Republicans uh, threw a blind eye to Trump's failings and ultimately went behind the Republican Party. And I think party triumphs over over personality here. And they're prepared to, you know, as I say, turn a blind eye to Trump's failings in order to have Republican control back in, in, the, in the White House and back in uh, back in Congress. Well, Suzanne, thanks a lot for that. I think you'll probably have holidays coming up, so we'll, we'll talk to you uh, after those. Thank you. Bye-bye. Our reporter, Peter Murta, has been in South Korea since last Friday and he joins me from the capital, Seoul. Uh, Peter, is there a sense there that everything is calming down a little bit after all the shouting from the rooftops and rising tensions of, of recent days? Yes, there is, uh, There is, Chris. Um, the interesting speech today from the president of South Korea on their national day and he says that you know the, the the South Korean government will prevent war at all cost, and putting the emphasis in 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 large measure on the need for a, a calm, peaceful dialogue, and saying something that really was quite a I think a, a signal to the Americans that um, military action on the Korean Peninsula can only be decided by the Republic of Korea. That that is South Korea. So that's an extra voice and an important one to the growing core last number of days, including from figures in Washington, like the Defense Secretary, National Security Advisor, etc. That the while America has a twin track approach of holding the big stick in one hand, the emphasis is very much on diplomacy and sanctions. Yeah, I was going to ask you there, Peter, if you thought that his his comment, very explicit comment, that only the government of South Korea would decide if a war would take place on the Korean Peninsula, was that a direct uh, slap down to Donald Trump? Well, I think it was certainly a signal to Donald Trump that the Korean government, uh, you know, is something that he shouldn't take for granted. And that is a, a strong uh, theme, if you like, running through the discourse here there has been a certain amount of uh, distaste and, and dismay in South Korea at the sense coming out from Washington from some commentators that basically they're motivated, the Americans are motivated, by keeping this problem in Korea. And if there's a war, it must be in Korea and not anywhere else. And naturally, people here interpret that as meaning well, from Washington's point of view, our lives are worth somehow less. 
Um, and now you mentioned there, Peter, it's National Day in Korea, in, in Korea today, the mm. North and, and South. Um, I, I presume there would normally be a kind of mood of celebration in South Korea on, on the National Day. Is, does that apply today or is everybody there worried about this um, tension and this threat of war or are they just getting on with their lives? Well, I think the biggest element today, to be honest, was that there's been appalling rain for nearly the entire day. It's just like St. Patrick's Day then. <laughs> so it rather put a dampener on anything that was going on uh, out of doors. As I know myself, I got drenched to the skin. But leaving that uh, aside, um, people here, very much my sense of things is they, they get on with their lives. They've been living with this sort of uh, bellicose, belligerent shouting from North Korea for a very long time and they're used to it and they don't pay a huge amount of attention to it and in recent days if they if they had worries it was because of the bellicose noise coming from Washington uh, whom they had normally seen uh, usually seen as a, as a as a reliable partner and a trusted partner there are there are different views about the Americans, but broadly, my impression is that they are they are accepted here, they're welcomed here. The relationship is one that people value. Yes, it is questioned, and there are some who oppose it, but broadly, I think it's accepted. And you anticipated my next question, really. I was wondering about how South Koreans today view the United States and their relationship with the U.S. Is, is there a generation gap there? I mean, do, do, would younger people have a different view of uh, the U.S. and its, its, its role in South Korea and its relationship with South Korea than an older generation? Well, it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm writing about that to, to some extent uh, in tomorrow's paper uh, and online. And I, I was talking to... Uh, an Irish American uh, academic uh, here, and and he was talking about there being kind of three views about the Americans, and and they're divided into generations. The older generation, people in their perhaps late 60s, 70s, uh, very fondly remember the fact that the Americans came to their rescue in 1950 when uh, the Communist North invaded and threatened to overrun the country. The Americans fought back with the South Koreans. They helped them win, and they stayed on, and they had helped uh, encourage and, and, and nurture the country into the democracy and extraordinarily acceptable and, and, and extraordinarily successful economy that it is now. Then you have a generation in the middle which is somewhat conflicted about the whole situation. It recognizes the debt of gratitude but doesn't really like having the Americans around. And then there's a younger generation um, who are actually kind of ambivalent about the whole thing, really, and just sort of get on with life. Uh, and um, do you think the... Do you get a sense, then, that the, the, the Trump administration has had an impact on that? Is that, is that changing people's view of the US in a, in, a, in a negative way, the way it is in other parts of the world, or, or not? I think that's probably too early to tell in relation to this crisis, but if I had to bet on it, I would say yes. Um, I would think that perhaps a younger generation who hadn't, and I don't mean to be presumptuous, but maybe hadn't thought about these things all that much because they're, they're like younger people everywhere. They get on with their life and friendships and careers and such like. And suddenly this thing has burst in on them. 
And I think, like an awful lot of people elsewhere in the world, looking at Washington, looking at what appears to be uh, a, a chaotic uh, approach to, to world affairs and to very delicate situations, looking at a president who seems to lack human empathy in all sorts of situations and not to be able to express himself well. And I think they will look at that and I think it will disturb them. And, and do you think from talking to people there, do they think the, this current administration has a good understanding of the complexities involved and the kind of various relationships here, the, like the relationships between North and South, the relationship between North Korea and China? Uh, you need to have a good understanding, I suppose, of all of that. But do you, does it sound like the White House has a good understanding of these complexities? It doesn't to me. Now, I, you know, I, I, I don't hold myself out as a, a long-standing expert on these matters, but certainly talking to people here, my impression is no. They don't feel that the U.S. has a, a sophisticated, in-depth understanding, or at least the White House doesn't. Uh, I'm sure it, people in the State Department would, uh, professional diplomats and analysts of uh, regional concerns and conflicts in history and all that. Um, I, t- I think people would recognise there is understanding at that level. But I think at the level of the White House, people would say, no, they don't understand us. Um, I'm, I'm struck the other day, I was down about 300 kilometres south of uh, uh, Seoul uh, in, a, in an area in the mountains where an anti missile uh, defence system is installed. And interviewing people down there, particularly quite quite a, a, an elderly uh, woman in a small village, uh, she certainly felt that just wanted uh, America to go away, that they didn't understand us, that the people in North Korea were Koreans like us, like me, and we will sort things out. Now, I'm not sure that that's an entirely realistic um, point of view when one is talking about... Uh, uh, a very sort of Orwellian totalitarian dictatorship, but nonetheless, it is a point of view, and it was hers, and she she held it sincerely. Right. Yeah. And another um, ex- trip you made from from Seoul, Peter, was to the demilitarized zone between North and South. Mm. Um, what's it like there? What what were your um, what were your takeaways, as the Americans might say, from from that trip? <laughs> Well, the takeaway, it was fascinating, obviously. Um, it, is, it is the borderline, one of the great conflicts of the world uh, that's, that's kind of frozen in aspect for the moment. Um, on one side, my, my impression was it's, it was almost team parkish. It is a huge, huge tourist uh, destination um, for, for people visiting Seoul. There are hundreds of tourist buses go there every day. And the story is told in varying degrees. Sometimes it's told rather sort of neutral and straight down the middle, and sometimes it's quite propagandistic from the southern uh, Korean point of view. Um, And there's lots to see uh, the tunnels that the North Koreans dug in the the 70s and 80s and were discovered. Um, And there are various viewing platforms. And you can stand in an elevated position and look through binoculars into uh, North Korea. And there's a demilitarized uh, strip which runs the length of the border across the country. It's about uh, four kilometers wide. 
And it's very lush and green and it's full of animals and wildlife because nobody goes there anymore. But beyond that, when you look into North Korea, you're looking at a comparatively barren place, a very sterile landscape with very little growing in it. Um, and the buildings that you can see, there's no sign of life, there's no cars moving, um, and it just looks rather odd and dead and, and sad. And just finally, back to kind of today's news, I don't know if it's kind of um, uh, today's, the main development really was this indication from North Korea, from the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, that um, he's now holding off on the um, plan he has to send missiles in the direction of the US territory, uh, Guam. Has that kind of... Um, uh, news kind of sunk in in South Korea yet, or, or what do people make of it? Yeah, I think it's all part of parcel of, of the larger mosaic of things ratcheting down. Um, they sort of squared up in front of each other, eyeball to eyeball, and sort of you know come over here and say that type thing. And and everybody was waiting for the North Koreans to react after Trump had said, if you throw anything at Guam, you know we're going to throw a hell of a lot back at you. And we were waiting for the reaction to that. And the reaction today is, it's quite interesting, actually. It's like something from the 1970s and and Latin America. You've got the North Korean news agency referring to the Americans as stupid Yankees and saying that they're just going to sit back and wait and see what the stupid Yankees do next. And in the meantime, they're, you know, examining the fine, fine tuning their plans for Guam. So it's, it's all a bit, um, it's, it's ratcheting down. Well, Peter, it's been great to have you there this week. You'll be continuing to report from there for the next couple of days. And uh, thanks for that. And we'll, we'll see you soon back in the office. Thanks a lot, Chris. Look forward to that. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now.